Our passage this morning is Exodus chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn in Exodus and find chapter 6. We'll read just the first half of the chapter through verse 13. We're continuing our series on redemptive history, the story of our salvation, how God has had one intention and He's working out one story from the start of all things to the end of all things, from the start of Scripture to the end of Scripture. So we've dealt with creation and the fall and the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, and this morning we're on to the exodus. And we won't be able to cover all the details, but this passage at least will give us something of a summary of what was happening in and around the exodus. This is the setup. This is Moses preparing to go in and really have his showdown with Pharaoh. He's already had one audience with Pharaoh, but it really picks up speed from this passage onward. Young Christians, young theologians, you're going to hear this morning that Moses was angry with God at one point. Why? And is that okay? Can you be angry with God? And if that is too much for you to listen for and to answer, how many years were the Israelites slaves in Egypt? How many? And see if you can think of a way to understand just how many that was. Not just a number, but really how many. This is the gospel of Jesus in the dark story, but still the hopeful story of the Exodus. But The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. As God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Pray with me as we begin. O Lord, our God, we are the people whose souls cling to the dust, as we said earlier in our liturgy. We love to make ourselves low. We are the people who in many ways love our slavery. And 
You are the God and Savior who loves to lift us up. And you are the God and Savior who loves to bring us out. And we ask you to open our eyes to see it all again. Open our ears to allow us to hear. And open our hearts. Breathe in them. And we may know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Jesus is the same God who stands over us to deliver. And for all of these things, we will give you thanks. And we ask them in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? The Exodus is the gospel. If only it were G-rated the way Cecil B. DeMille filmed it in his 1956 epic, The Ten Commandments, with overacting and melodrama and an overwrought film score to hide Israel's anguished cries, to sort of cover over broken hearts and the broken backs of the people. And Yule Brenner as the Pharaoh camera-friendly, tanned, toned, gleaming all over from his smooth head to his sandaled toes. He's the kind of man you imagine enjoys walking around in a loincloth long after the director called Cut. (laughs) And he's the perfect villain because he's a cartoon. And Moses... Don't you wish Moses had been more like Charlton Heston? More NRA spokesman than impromptu Hebrew prophet? That's who you want to show up to bring you out of slavery. With his jutting, dimpled chin, his hair perpetually blown backward like he'd just been struck by lightning, caught in a wind tunnel with no trace of a stammer in his diction, always standing on rocks over the people and thundering in what he said. If only it was as Hollywood as all that, with a guaranteed happy ending before the opening credits roll, and a screenplay that only lasts four hours and not 400 years. Ah, That's what makes the Exodus so hard. The Hebrews have been slaves so long they can't think of themselves as anything else. 400 is a nice round number, and maybe that's why we don't feel the blunt edges of it. But the Israelites have been slaves at this point 165 years longer than we have been Americans. Can you imagine that? You can't think of yourselves as anything but free. You've been free so long. So imagine that the same is true for the Israelites. They can't think of themselves in any other way but as captives. And what's worship like during those 400 years, do you think? 400 years of worship under those conditions. Did they even continue it? Or did they give it up? For how many years... Can you say to one another in worship service after worship service, well, we'll be here for a while, but God still loves us. 
What do you say to one another in the meantime? Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't cry. Stop crying. We're only here 400 years, just like Yahweh promised. Oh, oh yeah, that's the other part of this. Yahweh promised that it would be this way. This was always the plan. Way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15, God promised Abraham he'd have children like constellations. So many descendants, they'd be like the Milky Way. And then they would end up as slaves 400 years. Now, why didn't Abraham speak up? Why not complain? Why not object? Didn't it sink in? Was he at a loss for words? Look, even Moses speaks up at the end of chapter 5. Moses the stammerer objects. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? You have not delivered them at all. Moses is counting off the years in his complaint. The weight of decades of sorrow hanging on every word of it. Ah, to be forgotten like the Jews were forgotten. They'd come to Egypt through Joseph, the son of the last patriarch, Jacob. Joseph's jealous brothers sold him into slavery because he was their father's favorite. And through a series of events... He moves from being a slave to Pharaoh's most trusted advisor. And with a progressive agricultural program, he saves Egypt from famine. And then his family, the same ones who sold him off, flee to Egypt to take shelter there. And Joseph saves them from the famine too. And they're reconciled and restored to each other. And they live as this happy, extended family of expatriates. And generation after generation just falls out from them. They have descendants upon descendants while they're living in Egypt. And Joseph dies. And the years pass. And his service to Egypt is forgotten. And meanwhile, there's a nation of Jews living inside the kingdom of Egypt. Now, the Israelites are a public policy problem. There are so many of them. So Pharaoh says, you're not residents, so you're slaves. And he launches a major public works initiative to expand the glory of the empire. The glory of his reign. This is how pharaohs become immortal, cutting, quarrying, carving a kingdom out of stone that lasts through the ages. So, Joseph's children have the welcome mat withdrawn from them, and they're put in chains, and they're given hammers and chisels and molds to cook bricks and baskets, and wheelbarrows to lug the stuff, and ladders and scaffolding to stack it high. And along the way, there are broken fingers, and broken joints, and broken heads from falling rocks, and broken spirits from the bite of the foreman's whip. And their hopes are broken too, and it settles in that their God has forgotten them. Ah, to be mistreated the way the Jews were treated. 
They kept having babies, and their numbers kept swelling. And for population control, Herod, Pharaoh rather, orders that all the male children be euthanized. Tells the the midwives to choke their first breath out of them before they can even draw it. The midwives are uncomfortable with it, so they refuse. And they lied to Pharaoh. They said the Hebrew women are just too strong, they're too vigorous. They give birth before we even arrive. And the numbers of the people grew even stronger. So Pharaoh orders that the male babies be thrown into the Nile to drown or to be eaten by a hippo or a crocodile. Doesn't much matter so long as the numbers drop and Israel cries bitter tears. And then, when Moses appears as the deliverer, and he asks Pharaoh to let the people go out into the desert just to worship their God, Pharaoh decides to crush any future hope they may have of freedom by withdrawing the straw he provides them to make bricks. No more straw given over by the empire for you to mix into your mud as you cook your bricks. But we're going to keep the daily brick quota all the way up. You cut your own straw, the numbers remain the same, and good luck. And when Israel can't meet the number of bricks required in the daily orders, they're beaten and called lazy and told, tomorrow had better see more bricks made. The building program can't be slowed. And Israel groaned. But meanwhile, according to the end of chapter 2, God tastes their tears, and God groans their groans. In the last words of chapter 2, we're told, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, if you think about it, in all these details, God is stacking the deck against himself. Pharaoh doesn't fear him even after Moses threatens him with plagues in chapter 5. Pharaoh tightens his grip. He's not about to let a labor force of two million strong just up and leave. And and then there are God's own people. They don't want him in verse 9. The people didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery, they were demoralized. We simply can't bring ourselves to believe your promise to deliver us over your promise to give us away as someone else's slaves. Now you want to make us your people. No longer some other king's property. Too late. Our hearts are too bruised, too calloused, too scarred for that. And God is drastically outnumbered, not just by Pharaoh's prison guards, not by the active duty Egyptian soldiers, but by the gods of Egypt. God had to defeat the entire Egyptian pantheon, the army of gods and goddesses that made Egypt the superpower that it was. Scholars count 88 gods and goddesses in Egypt by the time Moses appears on the scene. Each part of nature was believed to have a God lurking behind it. The seasons, the trees, the harvest, 
The Nile River was the fertility goddess, the mother of all life. And the sun, Ra, was the father of all life. The giver of strength, the giver of light. And Pharaoh was believed to be his direct descendant. That's why Pharaoh wore gold all the time. To give the illusion of a solar gleaming pouring from him. Every plague this God of Moses poured out on Egypt was designed to be a bare-knuckled beating of another Egyptian deity. The plagues weren't just signs of strength and power. They were death matches. Little Egyptian God against the large, enormous God of the Israelites. And one by one, Yahweh is taking out Egyptian deities. So you see the contest? 88 gods who have kept the Israelites captive for 400 years against the one God the Jews have hardly ever heard of and barely believe in anymore. And then there is God's spokesman, the ill-suited prophet, who can't even get his name out without tripping over it two or three times. Apparently, this God is going to save through weakness and not through strength, which is the way we would all prefer it. Those are the stakes. 400 years, a global superpower, a king who's the offspring of the sun, 88 enemy gods and goddesses, and a backwoods redeemer who can't string together a sentence without making it into a jumble. Jennifer has an aunt who lives in San Francisco at the top of Russian Hill, which may not mean anything to you if you don't know anything about the city. But if the first rule in real estate is location, 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 Jennifer's aunt wins the game. So one morning this summer, Jennifer called me during a visit to her aunt's house. And she said, I'm sitting in the kitchen drinking my coffee, looking out over the city. I see Fisherman's Wharf below me. I'm looking out over the bay, and I have a clear view of Alcatraz. And I think that's the way we read Exodus. We read it like we're sitting in the kitchen, sipping our coffee or whatever it is we pour into our mugs to comfort ourselves or to make ourselves numb looking out over Alcatraz, overlooking the pains of Israel's lost centuries in Egypt at a far enough comfortable distance to be able to shake off whatever shudders may aim for our hearts. But that's not the way you're supposed to read it. An imagined threat produces an imaginary salvation. And if you don't feel Egypt, you can't feel coming out of Egypt either. And that will never work because we are real people and we have real problems. And we have real pain. We are not Buddhist. We do not believe that pain and suffering are illusions. Of all the tenets, of all the major world religions, that one's the worst. You cannot walk into a cancer ward and say, your body attacking itself? 
the deterioration you feel because we're pouring chemicals into you to kill the chemicals that are already eating you and, and you're caught in the middle, the loss of your hair, the loss of muscle mass, the loss of your health and your strength, it's an illusion. You're just imagining it. You can't use Buddhism for a man who's just been walked out on by his wife or for the little girl who tries as she may. She cannot win her father's approval. And you know where that ends up. We have real, real pain and real prisons. And and many of those prisons we've made ourselves. And we need a real God, a real Redeemer who comes to us with real deliverance and real salvation. And that's why the promise is 400 lost years and then I come to get you. But you have to know with depth deeper than your forgetful minds, deeper than your shifting hearts. You have to know it as deep as history in your collective consciousness. You have to know it as deep as the story I am writing for you to be from and the story I'm writing for you to be in, that you are mine and I won't share you. I'm stronger than any captor, any possessor who would dare to try to take you away from me. Of all the things God says about himself in scripture, what he says about himself in the Exodus may be the most important of all. He is our leaving. Our dramatic, against all odds, can't be stopped, never to return again, mass exit from the places of pain and subjugation, the places of bondage and bullying, the places of broken hearts and broken minds and broken hopes, the places that make us forget who we are. The summer I lived in Australia during college, there was a major prison break. A dozen violent criminals escaped from a maximum security prison and they eluded the police for days. Now, how they got out isn't very interesting. It's how they stayed out. The people helped them. The people would bring them into their homes and hide them from the authorities. They gave them places to sleep. They they gave them clothes to wear in exchange for their prison yard jumpsuits. They extended hospitality, fed them sandwiches, brewed coffee for them. They moved them from house to house when the police got too close in canvassing the neighborhoods. They toasted them with tins of beer from the fridge and rooted for them, cheered them on like they had something at stake in the criminal's flight for freedom. Now why on earth would ordinary citizens help Escaped convicts and felons. Not because it's a nation that started as a prison colony. They're all descendants of prisoners. And they've never forgotten their story. They can't get past it. Somehow, we always remember ourselves by the wrong story. We always remember ourselves by the shortest story, not the deepest 
We remember we're Texans and taxpayers and junior leaguers and billionaire heiresses or addicts and victims and degree holders. But somehow we never remember who we most deeply are, those loved by grace. Somehow we have a specialized amnesia for grace and God has a merciful answer to our forgetfulness. And so in verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people. Yawn. We've heard that before. I will be your God. Right, right, nothing new there. You're our God. You've always been our God, even through these 400 years of captivity. And you shall know. Not the knowing of reason, but the knowing of being. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, and I brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You will know that I am your God, not because I make sense to you, but because I set you free. Because I come as your Savior. He's out to show us that his love is stronger than any prison we should fall into or be carried off to or sentence ourselves to or shut ourselves away in. No prison is as strong as his love. But to know that theology, it has to be felt. To know that theology, he has to make himself our loving freedom after a too long too costly captivity. And then we won't forget as, as easily, as routinely, as often, as reflexively. We'll have to work to forget. You can make holidays out of this kind of theology. Kill a lamb. Make it a roast. Call the family together. Get neighbors and friends and we'll all sit around a massive dining room table and liturgically together we'll tell the story of our coming out of Egypt and we'll call it Passover. Or better yet, take the feast and drag it all the way down into the New Testament where it has its fullest form. And Sunday after Sunday, that's right, a weekly holiday now, not a yearly one. Sunday after Sunday, we'll get everyone together and we'll sing and we'll laugh and we'll shake our heads in disbelief and we'll splash them with water and we'll gulp bread and swig wine every time the name of Jesus is mentioned. Because Jesus is the point of it. Jesus is the holiday. Jesus is the new Moses. He's the baby who was saved from slaughter. More than Moses pulled from the Nile in his dripping basket, the infant Jesus escapes Herod's marching infanticidal troops. He was saved in order to save. He flees in his parents' arms down to Egypt and comes back out of Egypt years later when news reaches them that Herod, the bloodthirsty, rival-hating king, has died. He goes down into Egypt and comes back out of Egypt to show us that he is the author and the title and the meaning of this passage all the way back in Exodus. 
Jesus goes down into Egypt and comes back out of Egypt again to show us what He intends to do with us. And Jesus comes as the underdog prophet, not not stammering and tongue-tied. But He's no Charlton Heston either. He's unimpressive, unintimidating, unattractive, the prophet Isaiah says. Jesus saves through weakness to show through Himself the authority of God standing over all the powers that hold us down. Sin and shame and treason and guilt and our darkened hearts bent on death. And even God's own justice and judgment piled high against us. And Jesus says to them all, you can't hold God's people from Him any longer. He's taking them home. Stop Him if you can. And Jesus is all the plagues poured out from heaven. He's turned into a river of blood. He's every pestilence, every torment felt for ears of stone, refusing to hear God's word of grace. And He's the sun made dark in the sky, the light of the world put out. And He's the firstborn son put to death. To say, there is no legacy of ongoing sin for you. There is no future for you apart from God's gracious forgiveness. And Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood is spilled and then he's smeared on the lintel of the cross. The cross is our door of guilt, but with the blood of Jesus painted on it, it becomes the door of our forgiveness and propitiation and justification. And for all that, for all of it, Jesus is the exodus. He's our coming out of our captivities, every last one of them. Because He came out of the tomb like it was a parted sea, split down the middle, deep and wide and cutting off and swallowing whole, and yet it had to open to make way for Him bringing us out. And that's the gospel of the exodus. Jesus wills us out and calls us out and carries us out in his own body, but only, only after having put us in. That's the gospel of the Exodus. Jesus gives us our prisons to break them open and bring us out for himself. And I know that's a wildly unpopular statement among Christians and evangelicals. Skeptics will at least thank us for the honesty, but Christians will hate us for saying that. But I'll leave it to you to argue with Genesis 15 and the end of Exodus chapter 5. You you see if you can prove that it's not Jesus who gives us our prisons. I'll just say this experientially. I've never resented him for any prison he's given me. Because with each one, he reproves the love I re-question. The love that always finds me because it never lost me to begin with. The love that always brings me out because it never turned me loose. The love that let me feel like I was dangling and falling and plummeting to assure me again I was always being held firm. It's that love 
that laughs as it stands outside the iron bars and the high thick walls strung with barbed wire. And it says, you didn't think I couldn't reach you through all that, did you? Nothing will ever keep me from you or you from me. And I have put you in to bring you out that you may know. So the only question left is, why is our knowing so flimsy? Ah, because somewhere along the line, we turn the gospel story, the gospel of the Exodus, into half a story. Somewhere along the way, we began to forget that Exodus and gospel mean that we are redeemed from something and we're redeemed to something else. And we go wildly wrong because we try to live in one half of that sentence only. I only want to be redeemed away from something. I don't want to be redeemed to something. I only want to be redeemed to something. I don't want to be redeemed away from what I'm currently under. And we make ourselves half people because we try to live in half of Jesus' story. But the prison of anger is meant to be turned into the promised land of the peace of Christ. And the prison of our hurt is meant to be turned into the promised land of Jesus' healing. And the prison of fear is meant to become the promised land of courage and confidence in the gospel. And childishness turns to maturity. And folly becomes wisdom. And defensiveness turns into repentance. And restlessness and boredom turn into ministry and self-judgment and self-hatred become resting in the love of Jesus and seeing ourselves in His beauty made beautiful by Him and for Him. And the lust of all of our idols becomes a desire for more of Jesus and mourning and sorrow turn to joy and unbelief becomes worship and faith and silence and scoffing are turned to proclamation. But to feel the wholeness of the gospel, you have to wear it in both parts. What is Jesus redeeming me away from? And what is Jesus redeeming me to in himself? Your whole life long, you don't get to stop living the exodus. And because the love of Jesus is so epic, You shouldn't want to. I was watching the news this week and there was a segment on a housewife, a stay-at-home mom who apparently has become so bored staying at home, she has taught herself to be an escape artist. So the footage they showed was mostly lots of chains and padlocks wrapped around her and stepping off the edge of swimming pools into the deep end or more footage of handcuffs and shackles and manacles, and she's locked into a little plexiglass box, again filled with water, and she pulls a well-concealed bobby pin out and picks the locks and gets herself out, heaving for breath just in the nick of time. It's impressive for what it is. It's also kind of stupid, isn't it? If you need a hobby that badly, take up yoga or knitting or baking. 
But chains and locks and suffocating voluntary prison cells aren't fun and games and entertainment. They're real life. That's the problem. They're our condition. They're what we live in. They're our circumstances, our hearts. But here's the good news. Jesus gives you your own heavy, constricting, cutting chains to wear. He gives you your own unbreakable locks to curse and finally surrender to. And then he transfers them all to himself. He wears them all to break them all. Because he's the escape artist. And he's your exodus. He breaks your prisons to make you know His love. He gives you your prisons to break your prisons and to make you know His love. If you have ears to hear, Oh, Lord Jesus, we don't like the way you work with us. We wish you'd do it differently. We wish you'd give us a vote. We don't want the gospel of imprisonment followed by the gospel of exodus. But even that is grace and mercy for our forgetful hearts, for our voluntary amnesia. So help us not to rage and rail and resent our prisons. But make us grateful for them because with each one you reprove your love to us. Allow us to see that never do you stop loving us. Your love is shown in its brightest and most beautiful in our dramatic leaving, by your love and your power and your provision. Give to us these things. And we will remember with joy, like every day you give us in the gospel is a holiday, a festival day. Now the festival continues around your table with bread and wine as we eat. Call us away from the prisons that we've set up for ourselves. Some of those prisons have been pressed on us. The loss of jobs. The loss of a loved one. The loss of health and strength. But still our hearts do twisted things with those losses. Call us away from our prisons again in your grace. And allow us to feel the freedom and newness in Christ our Savior. You never tire of calling us to. With eating and drinking, give to us appropriate mourning for our sins. With eating and drinking, give to us surpassing joy for your love and forgiveness and the recreation that is ours in Christ. But whatever you do, 
this eating and drinking make us less forgetful and more celebratory. And for it, we'll give you thanks. Thanks.